being in, in those different spaces that were, were had become, they've fallen out of use and they were just kind of open and full of possibilities and, and just like, it was kind of like a time warp, you know, you would walk in and, and like there was a coffin factory in the basement. So there were coffins. And, wow. And there were like raves would be held in the building. So there was like, um, it was just like a lot of like underground, um, you know, like kind of off the radar feeling about it all. Tokyo tonight. There's like a thunderstorm rolling in, so it might get a little wild over here. Ooh, very nice, yeah. very nice. I like That's that. Fun. Yeah, I. You know what? We can do. We can do a, an episode of just ASMR, and we'll just do a, a the you know, rolling thunder. Yeah, the rolling thunder, the little <laughs> rainfall. We'll get people to like ease into bed during this episode. It'll be nice. <laughs> there we go. Like, how you been? Those when the power goes out. Yeah, I love that. That's like I'm I'm a big like I love when storms are coming in, and if I'm home and they're in, um, I'm set. I think that's great. Me too. I love I love some wild weather. Yeah, yeah. Um, we just started getting tornadoes here for the first not for the first time but like every year because of you know the whole climate change shit like it just gets worse and worse and people in new jersey do not we do not have storm shelters per se for uh tornado shit so like every time it blasts on the tv where it's like take shelter we're like where <laughs> like what are you talking about um so yeah like around this but i still like like, I don't know. I still get excited. Like, even though I know a tornado is like really bad, I'm like, oh, I should put on Twister, get some Helen Hunt up in here. Um, it'll be fun. <laughs> I don't know if you, did you guys get any of that in Texas? That was funny to me, the Twister guy. Oh, yeah. Texas is famous for tornadoes. Um, we just had some tornadoes like roll through. One of them started about five miles from my house. Oh, shit. They, like, they, they hit town. So I don't think anybody died. You didn't see the video of the kid who drove through through the tornado in his pickup truck. He was going to an interview in Whataburger. Yes. And his, his car got completely flipped over by the tornado. Yeah. And, I, um, he made it out alive and he got the job. And he just kept going, which I thought was fucking amazing. Like he, he like it totally flipped over. And then the truck was just like, all right, it <laughs> just kept going. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I forgot if that was in Texas. I just saw the ones in Kansas. That was nuts. I think it was Kansas, right? Yeah. I think I heard a tornado go over one time when I lived in Illinois, um, but I've never actually been in a tornado. I almost got sucked up in a dust devil one time oh, in the Oregon desert. Yeah. And um, that, you know, it gets hot, it heats up the ground, and you get these weird, like, uh, um, convections and things. And it, like, went right by us. We were sitting <laughs> in the tailgate of a Volvo eating lunch, and uh, it came across the plane and, like, sucked up a uh picnic table umbrella you know and yeah, it yeah. over the gas station like dropped it in the back wow and it was wow. like 10 feet away from where we were sitting it was amazing 
That's crazy. Yeah, the Dust Devils, when I used to live in Arizona, we would be same thing, kind of like either sometimes we'd be at a traffic light and literally one would just go by like with other people in a crosswalk and be like, have a good day, you know, or whatever. Or uh, or we'd be playing when we were kids and sometimes one would just kind of pop up and it was kind of nuts. It was exciting. I'm so I'm totally new to this. I didn't really? know what the Dust Devil was. It sounds like a really oh. aggressive dust bunny. And now, like, I want to, I want to experience it or see it happen. Yeah, no, they're really cool, man. I mean, they're not, they're not dangerous at all, right? I've never seen one do any real damage. Have you? No, I think they're like little baby tornadoes. I think the ground yeah. gets heated up. There's a difference in the pressure between the air and the ground, and it just starts a little vortex, and it picks up dust. And you can see them in New Mexico and like the Texas Panhandle, and like you said, Arizona, right, John? Yeah, Arizona. Yeah. Yeah, and they're they, cool. They just cruise along. Sometimes they'll happen over the ocean, and they're called uh, what are those called? Oh, a water, water spout. Yeah, water spout. Do you when you heard the tornado? When you said you heard one, I heard they sound like a freight train. I'll get off the tornado kick in a second, but I'm curious. Do they sound like? Do they, they actually sound, sound... Like, a, like a moaning, whizzing? Yeah, it did kind of sound like a freight train. It did. Yeah, that's but what I've like heard. A whiz to it. It was. It didn't. It was it's nothing I'd ever heard. Okay. Yeah. Somebody had, somebody had told us last, cause we got really close to having, uh, some really bad, I think one touched down in my town, uh, like on the main road in the town that I live in and it did some damage, but, uh, somebody had said something to me during a text message. I was like, I don't know. Like I, I hear it. I heard, I like, I read it touched down or whatever. And they were like, Oh, well, if you hear the sound of a freight train, it's too late. And I was like, thank you. Wow. <laughs> like that's, that's really comforting to me. Um, do you, you got a new album coming out, right? Like, or some songs that you had written? I, it's, yeah, it's in the process. You know, it's going to be a little while. I have to make the record, but the songs are done. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's just kind of like a one day at a time sort of process. I didn't want to get ahead of myself. Mm -hmm. You know, like so right now, I literally just, just came back from, from writing the songs like uh, the day before yesterday. Nice. So they're still kind of settling in with me. Were they, was it stuff you were working on during the pandemic, like during lockdown and stuff? No, this is all brand new. Nice. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Um, did you, when you were doing that kind of, like when we were all kind of stuck at home, did you kind of embrace like, uh, you know, virtual stuff a little bit more? Like, did you do any, like how fast yeah. were you to go to the streaming service? Really fast. I had a really long illness, you know, like a debilitating illness that lasted for years. And I was mm -hmm. just starting to get well enough to start to play out of town shows. Um, and then COVID hit. <sighs> so it was super disappointing. Um, but, you know, I was used to not being able to go out and not being able to do stuff from being sick for so long. So COVID was um, not all that different. You know, mm -hmm. I felt like I'd already kind of been through boot camp in that yeah. regard but um but doing the stuff uh like just live streaming shows um was you know it was sort of like a candle in the dark it's like you don't it's not the same as as playing you know a live show and feeling the exchange of energy with like actual human beings um but it's it's sort of at least i was doing something you know right um because it's yeah. a very weird thing to not be able to perform when you're yeah. so used to doing it. 
Absolutely. And I feel like that's that's a good point. Like it felt like no matter what we were doing, even if it was weird, it was just enough to do something to keep us going. Yeah, I called it the loneliest music venue in the entire world. <laughs> it was like sitting down. Because <laughs> you don't know like who's going to be listening, where they are, like how many people, any of that. You just have mm. to believe in it. And you just have to jump off the jump off the cliff and and just just believe that it's it's happening and it's you know legitimate and it's valid and yeah yeah. Um, Did you find music, like you know music is is meant to be shared and enjoyed in like a communal communal way. Yeah. So, yeah, it was different. It was really different. Did you find like new avenues of creativity during the time? Um, I did, you know, um, we got chickens and uh, like right when I saw the pandemic coming, I just went into like survival mode. I'm like, okay, how bad is this gonna get? You know, when is the food supply chain gonna break down? And I live right by the farm supply store and I just went over and bought some chickens and I got a boy and three girls and I thought, well, if if everything breaks down and like millions of people die and then at least there'll be chicken to eat, you know? And, <laughs> you didn't tell this uh, tell them this when you bought them, right? Of catastrophizing. Like I, I right. don't know. I can see the worst case scenario and prepare for it. Um but uh, we ended up on the front page of the style section of the Sunday New York Times because of those chickens. Wow. Really? Were they just yeah. well-dressed? Like, what was the... Uh... Um, it was because a friend of mine um, was friends with the writer, and she just said, oh, uh, I heard that uh, Tove is looking for, uh, wants to talk to people who got chickens because of the pandemic. And so wow. I called her, we talked for like five minutes and like the next day there was a photographer from the New York Times in my backyard. And <laughs> wow. there we Disguised were. <laughs> as a chicken to like blend in with the other chickens to yeah, make sure it didn't disturb the process. Aesthetically pleasing chicken photos. <laughs> That's awesome. So wait, did you wind up like, I mean, are they just, do they still have them? Like what happened to the chickens? Of course. Oh, nice. Yeah. Good. They're like, um, I get three eggs a day and... I got some more um, little ones. They're called bantams, and they're oh. only about the size of like a pigeon. Yeah. And um, they're just really sweet. Mike, do you wow. have do you have bantams? Do you I've know never them? ever seen a bantam before. I've seen, but I have neighbors who have chickens and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but I've never seen a, a pigeon chicken before. See, I've seen a bantam because if you go to like the state fairs and stuff, they'll have like the categories and they'll show you like, the... I was on the same page. I want, I started a garden for the first time ever. I was like, I need to control my food source. <laughs> right. I'm jealous yeah. that you got chickens. I think that was an incredible idea. That's awesome. Well, just think back to the first days, you know, nobody, it was like, we were in completely uncharted territory. Nobody knew what was yeah. going to happen. How bad it was going to get you couldn't leave your house we built the chicken coop with like every weird screw in the junk drawer and every you know last little piece of lumber that i had laying around and um, wow you know so there was that we did i did start a garden i i was one of those annoying sourdough people <laughs> those, are, those people are not annoying they're inspiring so yeah, yeah. i made the most beautiful sourdough bread i got a starter from my neighbor and just started baking sourdough loaves. Oh, that's awesome. They were really good at it. Like right out of the gate. They were yeah. just big, round, beautiful balls of deliciousness. 
Oh, they're so good. I have a bunch of friends who who did that kind of stuff. I baked banana bread. Um, that was good. I sent. Do you know Tom Papa? He's a comedian, and he's got this podcast called Breaking Bread with Papa, and he's obsessed. I mean, if he wasn't a stand-up, he would just bake bread for the rest of his fucking life. Like he would just—that's what he would do. And he, yeah. and he, I mean, most of his Instagram, I feel like it's like maybe. 60 40 comedy bread you know what i mean like, like it's just and it's and it's leaning towards bread so he, he bakes all this stuff but i i baked my own banana bread and i sent him a message with the picture of the bread he got back to me within like three minutes i was like are you just waiting for bread pictures online he's like people send them to me all he's like i will talk he, we had him on the show and he was like i will talk to people about bread more than i will talk to them about comedy it's <laughs> like that's crazy but i had friends who made like who got really good at making pizzas at home Yes. Oh my and god. It's Only so good. Sourdough crust pizza is the best thing. Oh, I've never had that. That sounds amazing. Yeah. And it's like it takes a lot of time and a lot of like it's very, you know, kind of meticulous and you have to plan ahead, but that's that's kind of what we needed at the time was just to, yeah. to focus on things and to like give space to the you know, define the days somehow. Like, yeah. It, it it's weird that we were like, oh man, we're gonna have to be like you. You legitimately went and got chickens though, but the rest of us were like, oh, we're gonna have to start roughing it. I better figure out how to make freshetta pizza, or you know, <laughs> like like it was it was weird that like everybody's terms of like survival were a little bit different than you're like, oh, that doesn't really count. Um, but I don't know. I didn't do anything. I still don't cook to this day. Like aside from like accidentally making banana bread or like you know. Uh, Toll House cookies. I still don't you know cook. Really good in banana bread. What? Chocolate chips. Oh, really? Put little tiny chocolate chips in there. You can cut up a chocolate bar, and, or just put the baby chocolate chips. It's it makes it a million times better. Oh, that sounds really know. good. Yeah, I've never done, but I have to do that again. I love. Oh, man, I ate so much fuck. I ate so much stuff that I. I don't know why I thought it was like it didn't count calorie wise to like <laughs> to just stuff my face with all the wrong things. But I was like, whatever, it's a pandemic, and like loaf of bread, pizza, ice cream. Yeah, isn't there like a thing like the COVID-15? Yeah, yeah. It was more 15 pounds during COVID at least. Oh, yeah. See, and I think I went in the opposite direction because for the first time ever, I got to eat all organic Strictly vegetables. I was at. I was legit. I'm a. I'm a fatty right now, but I was legitimately <laughs> seventy pounds lighter during the pandemic, which is crazy, wow. right? Wow, it was insane. I did really well in the beginning. I think I did. I think I like because I'm. You know me. I'm like a gym guy anyway. So like I like to run and bike and stuff. And then when the pandemic hit, I just kept biking and running and all that stuff. But as soon as winter came around. I like, I took a dive, man. It was just, it was just, I was eating everything I possibly could. And also, but not thinking like I gave up. I was just like, man, my metabolism will take care of it. <laughs> and like, you know, 40 pounds later. Um, and I was like, I'll just hide it with hair. But it was, it was weird for sure. Um, did you, uh, did you, like when you got to finally go back out onto the road or like, you know, when this kind of, cause I know everybody like went back out at different times. If you're in Texas, they probably eased up way earlier, but was it, was it like cathartic for you? Um, playing live shows is, you know, I'm still kind of easing back into it and, mm. uh, yeah, it's, it's wonderful. It's just like the community aspect of playing music live is the thing that, um, I think was 
making musicians just like, I think that was the hardest thing for musicians is not being able to see other people perform, not being able to like enjoy mm -hmm. other people's music live and talk yeah. to your fans and just share that like emotional exchange. Um, yeah. And um, yeah, so it's kind of like, uh, I played a show the other night and it was just like, um, everything was in like, was it felt like it was like four dimensional and sparkling. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah, it was cool to go back out and do that kind of stuff. And plus, I think it had to be doubly for you, like you said, because you weren't, you were dealing with like an illness for a while and then COVID hit and then yeah. to be able to go back out must have been awesome. Yeah, yeah. And I've got COVID. Um, I have long COVID too. I'm like, oh, do you really? People, yeah. Damn. When did you get it? Um, I got it in November of 2020. So kind of wow. on the early side, like it was way right. before um, vaccines and. Um, you had OG was, COVID. Huh? You had OG COVID. You had the I original. Had the OG COVID where yep. you like lost your sense of smell and taste. and. Damn. Um, so uh, it sucked, man. I was so careful too. Um, I think I might have caught it through my eyes because that's where I had my first symptoms. Oh, wow. Like watery mm -hmm. eyes because I was wearing masks and like, you know, keeping my hands like totally clean and. Right. Know. Yeah. Do you still yeah. do you still have the uh, lack of smell or like distorted smell still? or? Um, it... I mean, it, it damaged my autonomous nervous system, which like regulates your senses and your heart rate and your breathing and stuff. So I wow. actually have like nerve damage from COVID. Wow. Oh my God, man. That's crazy. I have never heard of that before. Yeah, um, it's the thing. It's like they're starting to become more aware of it. And and uh, you, you, University of Texas has a program that I got into right away, like a long COVID program. So they're kind of like, then they're like at the, you know, kind of research and uh, figuring out what how it's affecting people. Wow. That's really good that they're doing that. I mean, I got, um, I got Omicron is what I wound up getting. And um, at least, I mean, you know, I have to assume that's what it was. I didn't have any of the traditional symptoms and I got it like a, like a month ago, probably to the day. Um, and uh, but it did hit me like for about three days. I was like wildly. I think I slept for like 12, 13 hours the second day. Um, I had like the not like sore throat, massive congestion. And the craziest thing to me was like, they're not kidding when they tell you over the counter stuff doesn't really do anything. Like yeah. I was taking suited, I was taking everything to just kind of take the edge off a little bit, but it wasn't really totally helping. So I can't imagine what it would have been like without any vaccines and stuff. Yeah. That's brutal. What is the, um, uh, when you go to the, for the research and stuff, I mean, is it just like, do you check in every, every month or so? Like, how do they keep up with um, it? It's every, if you don't mind me asking. Um, yeah, like we can talk about it a little bit. It was, they just screened um, me, like all my symptoms to find out kind of like what it was that was making that symptom happen. And it kept coming back that it was nerve damage from the COVID. And I actually had a nerve biopsy, um, you know, which is something that it's a pretty obscure procedure. And I wouldn't mm -hmm. have gotten it unless I had the symptoms that I had Wow, uh, that persisted for as long as they did. Wow, that's crazy. Um, well, I, I mean, you know, we don't have to stick, stay on that because I know it's not a great topic either. But um, it's just crazy. I mean, everybody's going through something different. So it's nice to kind of touch on it. Um, I wanted to tell you the first time I actually heard um, a piece of your music with you were covering Towns Van Zandt's uh, Buckskin Stallion. Love that. I'm not a 
like I, I'm I'm very picky about covers. Like I like, you know, I like it whatever. You did such a great like I almost like it better than the original song. It's beautiful. Thank you. What was that? What did you was that something you had been asked to do or you decided to do on your own? Um I recorded it uh here in Austin with my friend and um producer Brian Beatty. Mm -hmm. And uh it was really for um it was for a Townsend Zant tribute album that came out overseas, and it was really right. small. Um, but you know, I just gravitated towards that song because it just wasn't one of the most popular ones. This is this is like way before Three Billboards. This is right. just focusing on connecting with the song and creating a recording of it. And mm -hmm. um, my friend Paul Brainerd flew in some steel and Dobro from Portland, and you know, he's an old friend, goes back like twenty years. Mm -hmm. And um, and Brian and I just lovingly constructed this this song. Um, I recorded it with this this guitar. It's an old. Oh, wow. uh, it's from 1961. It's a handmade uh, nylon string guitar from um, Peru. Wow, that, my friend, that is beautiful. Uh, Tom Torino gave me. He's a musicologist in uh, at the University of Illinois, and he hmm. just gave it to me because he thought that. It went with my voice, you know. So yeah. that's the guitar, and um, we mixed it together. You know, I was uh, right there with Brian mixing the song together, and um, you know, it was like a tree falling in the woods. Nobody really heard it. Um, I think it hmm. ended up. I don't know how um, Martin McDonough ended up finding it, but I just got this call out of the blue. It was really when I was at my sickest. So uh, huh. things were pretty bleak for me. Mm. And um, I didn't know what the film was. I didn't know who was going to be in it. I didn't know if it was big or small. So um, they, you know, just the, the wheels kind of started turning. And um, I didn't know how the song would be utilized in the film until I actually saw it. Wow. But when I saw it at the end, you know, that it's the only, that there is no dialogue. It's just this, my voice, me singing this Town Van Zandt song. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's a really powerful way that they use the song. And, yeah. Um, yeah, so that's the story. That's awesome. That's crazy that they don't tell you ahead of time where it's going to be placed. So you kind of just have to go in blind and trust that yeah. it's going to be used properly. I guess there's just so many millions of moving parts in a film, you know, that it was, mm -hmm. I just have to, to believe um, that it was going to be a good film and believe that it would be used well. And yeah. I, it was, there was no, you know, nobody was trying to make it happen. They literally, they just came out of thin air and came to me and asked me to use that, to use that song. That's great. Yeah, that's really cool. Do you think of it now, like when once that happened, were you like, oh, man, like, I wonder if I should try to like write or gear my stuff towards like film and TV? Um, that's a funny question. Um, I would love for more of my music to be in film and television. Mm -hmm. I really would. But I'm not writing specifically for that. Right. Because it, it feels like I mean, I've listened to a lot of your stuff since then, and I, I feel like there's a million places to put um like because because all of your stuff i mean it's very lyrical and it's and it's got a story to it and and like you kind of get lost in it when you're listening to it you know what i mean like you can totally put yourself in the place so like half the time when i'm listening to your stuff like i can just see these scenes unfolding and i'm like oh man this would be great like if you were like 
you know, driving down a road and with for this song or if it was like a family around a thing in this situation. So it's just interesting. Like, are you writing visually like that when you're writing your music? Is it is it more lyrically first or, or instrumental first? Like, how does it all come together for you? I think that's the mystery of it, because when I write a song, um, it's like you have to let it go and it creates an experience in the listener. So you, John Pavaremo, is listening to one of my songs mm -hmm. and it's working away inside your memories and your feelings and what's going on with you and the relationships that you've had and the places you've been. Mm -hmm. And um, there's no way that I could have made that happen. Like that's, right. that's the magic of music is that it just, it's like you let it go and it just does something different for each person. True. That's a good way to put it. Um, do you, do you, were you like that when you were a kid? Was this your passion all the way, like growing up to now, or did you have something else you wanted to do and you kind of fell into music? Um, I didn't really fall into music. I was like a late bloomer with just about everything. Um, and I didn't write my first song until I was 23. Wow. So I started teaching myself guitar when I was about 19 or 20. Mm. Um, and this was in, I was still in Chicago at the time. And, uh, once I started writing, I couldn't stop. And I started playing in bands with other people pretty quickly and realized that like being a songwriter, you're a band can't play music without songs. So by, by writing songs, you're creating like a vehicle for, for bands. And like when you're real early and you don't have a sound yet and you don't really know it's just kind of like this, this new thing. Um, right. It's like people just kind of gravitated towards me because I was writing the songs. Okay. That's yeah. actually, was it, was that your goal or did you, was that like your thing where you were like, oh man, did you realize that early on? Like, oh, I've got something that everybody else wants. And, and that's, no. oh, okay. <laughs> no, not at all. Like, I just, I think, um, you know, the early days in Chicago, what I'll tell you about that was like, this was, I'm 51. So I was started playing music in the early nineties, mid nineties, mm -hmm. when um, Chicago was still kind of like run down and, and it, it didn't have that. It had a whole big boom that happened like in the two thousands. So you could rent space in a weird warehouse somewhere, you know, on like a dark, lonely street for like, you know, split the rent between four people for like 20 bucks each. And wow. we, my first rehearsal space was in this building that had a big clock tower. And there's this goth guy that lived in the clock tower. And like, <laughs> he kind of controlled the building. Wow. And uh, I think his name was like <laughs> Dale or something. But uh, wow. so we, we, there was like a, a freight elevator, you know, like one of those ones with like the, the lever. And oh, yeah, those are cool. Yeah, and it's all open, and like you go up in this in this elevator shaft, and then uh, we just had like a space, and we kept our gear in there, and we just banged away at what you know what what we had at the time. We were just right. like learning how to be musicians and learning how to play with other people. That's and awesome. There was just that experience was really cool, just like being in in those different spaces that were, were had become they'd fallen out of use and they were just kind of open and full of possibilities and and just like it was kind of like a time warp you know you would walk in and 
and like there was a coffin factory in the basement so there were coffins and, wow <laughs> and there were like raves would be held in the building so there was like um uh, it was just like a lot of like underground um you know like kind of off the radar feeling about it all that is wild you got a guy living in a clock a goth guy living in a clock tower under a coffin factory with raves going i mean that's I, like that's perfect I yeah. can, you couldn't have even made that up i couldn't do you still talk to any of those people um no really no there's got to be a reunion tour or something you guys got to set something up and go back to that <laughs> coffin factory <laughs> see if there's any more raves yeah, going had, on we had a halloween party in the factory and uh, I dressed up like David Bowie from um, Aladdin Sane, you know, so I had oh my God. lighting bolt and I was wearing this um, gold lame spacesuit and like spray painted boots and stuff. And we oh. did Panic in Detroit because my uh, bass player was this girl named Esther, just like a uh, four foot 11 Mexican girl who just like slammed it on the bass. And uh, nice. I guess on uh, Halloween in Detroit, it's this like, messed up tradition where they burn down houses. So it was like it was pretty wild <laughs> days. I've never heard of any of this. Yeah. <laughs> this is amazing. Yeah. So I think so what you're saying is those people night. are on the run. What is that? I've heard of that too from in Detroit actually. Oh for the burning yeah. the houses thing? I never heard burning houses, but I heard it's mayhem. Like oh, legit oh, okay. mayhem oh, on that awesome. night. Yeah. You gotta have some photos from back then, right? Uh probably in a box somewhere. I've been like I've traveled so much and and just kind of like, I, I, I don't have a whole lot of a trace. But I did save, I've got all of there is all of my journals. I, I oh, you know, nice. somehow I managed to hold on to that whole history. So I have 30 years worth of journals. That's awesome. That's a great, what was it? Was the traveling side by side with the music or the love of music and that kind of thing? Like you wanted to do both at the same time or you were just on the road because you wanted to see other places? Um, Both, I mean, mm -hmm. It was like, uh, I felt most at home on the road. And um, I also really just loved playing music. And I just kind of wanted to turn into music, honestly. Like I was running from some demons and, you know, music just was this outlet for, you know, anything. Mm. And, um, you know, having this this life on the road and, and just being in motion all the time and just kind of like, I mean, I got to the point where the country just, it's like, you could just, you know, I just pictured America as like tour stops and like how far, how long does it take you to get from here to there? What do you see in between here and there? And, um, you know, what people are you going to get to see in, in one place or another? And it's just like a really different way to orient oneself right. than living in an apartment and you know, seeing the same people all the time and being part of like a local thing. It's like, I was just like a bird floating above yeah. on clouds of music. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Do yeah, you think a awesome. lot of musicians use that as like, cause I feel like that's a great, that's a great analogy. Like, because you did have like demons that you were trying to escape from. It's easier just to like me, I would dive into work or do this and do that. So do you think a lot of musicians, because they're creative and a lot of creatives do have demons that chase them. Do you think that, leads to like life on the road and touring and making it easier just not to ever feel settled. Yes. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it was, I can only speak for myself, but it was definitely true for me. Interesting. Nice. Yeah. 
I like the, the, you know, um, I feel like, I don't know. I feel like I wish it was easier to travel. It doesn't seem as easy to travel as it did. Like if you're an artist, like back in the day, you know what I mean? Like, I think, I don't know why I feel like that's the case. I don't know if it's because, you know, people feel bogged down by too much stuff or social media makes it like way too hard to kind of find a new place and set. Cause everybody kind of has an idea of who you are. You know what I mean? Like with through social media where yeah. I feel like instead of just picking up in a van and going to a new town and no one's ever heard you before, like it's a, just, just a different outlook. Like I kind of wish that was the same, the way that the way it was. Cause I, when I was a kid, I wanted to do exactly that. Like we moved around a lot when I was a kid um, mostly because of my dad, but like we, we just did like, we didn't stay in the same house more than once for years. Um, but I, but I didn't know that it was like a, a fucked up thing. I just thought this is awesome. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, like traveling yeah. on a plane, going back from place to place, kind of, you know, meeting new people and shit. So it kind of got in my head. Like I always imagined myself doing that kind of stuff and I got to do it, you know, doing stand up, but it never felt like, it never felt like the things I had read about, like or or other musicians had kind of had or other comedians had kind of had where you're like yeah it's just me and my friends on a bus and we haven't heard from our parents in months and uh <laughs> you know what i mean where now it's like we have these so everybody knows where you are every fucking second of the day yeah and and you can't not be you know gotten in touch with i don't know it's a different life i kind of envy it yeah i mean i was living living life on the road for um you know, as often as, as much as I could, I was living out of a van playing music every night. And, you know, um, I was doing it all on my own. So right. I didn't wow. have like a, a big label that was financing it. I was like completely doing it DIY and bringing people with me and having pickup bands sometimes and having people who I played with, you know, for a long time. So my music was like so adaptable that depending on who I was with, I would be creating a new sound, you know, and kind of um, steering the repertoire towards what it was that we were doing. So my music is really elastic in that way. Like I've never been writing to make a sound, sound a song sound a certain way or to fit into a certain thing, you know? Mm. That's great. Because it keeps you at least entertained while you're creating your stuff. You know what I mean? Like you're not pigeonholed into some kind of, you know, particular sound that people expect you to deliver every time. Yeah. And I mean, when I write songs, I'm writing, I want to write a song that can hold its own. So it's not something that's dependent on elaborate arrangements. It's not dependent on a bunch of studio trickery. Like the song is a structure um, and you can do whatever you want with that structure. If it's a solid structure, you can build it a hundred different ways and it's never the same thing mm -hmm. twice. Did you, you seem kind of free spirit in that respect. You know what I mean? Did you have people that you um, idolized, kind of wanted to model yourself after when you were coming up or were you just like, I'm, I'm doing my own thing like musically? Like, did you have anybody that you were like, Oh, I want to be like that person. I don't think so. Nice. Yeah. Nothing, yeah. I didn't get that impression from you, but I just, everybody, sometimes people see somebody and they're like, Oh man, that's the career I want. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. I was living the van life way before there was a van life. <laughs> you no, know, way before there was right. a hashtag. And I had a 82 Chevy 
Beauville diesel van that was so awesome. It was like driving a team of oxen, you know, because it was like a <laughs> so strong. It like took a while to get up to speed, but once it did, it would just go forever. Wow. And then I had a um I had the Econoline, you know, like every band has. Yeah. And, but I really love vans. I still love vans. And I'm I don't have a van right now and it makes me sad. Oh man. We have a friend who we we um her name is Billy Webb and she was uh, a founder on TikTok and she's a van life person and she was legitimately homeless for a long time. And then she kind of yeah. like, cause there's van life people that are like loaded, but they just, you know, they live in their vans and their parents kind of pay their way. And they've got these high tech fucking inspector gadget vans, but she legitimately like, you know, was homeless for a long time, got herself a van. Um, and she'd come on to talk to us and stuff. And she and I have kept in touch. But her van finally broke down, and I think she was like, oh. "Heart, yeah." But she she's living, she's got a car now, so she's doing like the car life type of thing, and she's kind of embracing that. But you could, I could tell when it was like time to say goodbye to the van, she was kind of like, "Oh man, that's my," you know, she loved that van, you know, for a little bit. So she's yeah. like, "I don't know if I'll ever go back," and I was like, "You'll probably go back," but <laughs> but it's yeah. an interesting way to live. I, you know, it. I went without having a home for um, very long stretches of time, you know, because uh, it costs too much to have an apartment if you're an independent artist. It's not like you can have, you know, it's like you have to put all your resources into traveling and into moving from one place to another and into like staying someplace and working as hard as you can to come up with the money to put out another record and then make yeah. the record then go out and tour and it's like it's, it's there's a lot of sacrifice and a lot of hard work in being an, an independent musician so would would you say that your goal i mean i feel like would you say your goals were a little bit different than the most musicians then because you seem to be having a good time just kind of going from town to town living in the van playing your music and being creative did you have the same kind of mindset where you were like oh i need to get a record label or i want to do this show and i want to play here like how how what was your trajectory into that kind of stuff um of course i would have loved more support um there mm. isn't there isn't like a golden ticket for everybody who is good at playing music there just isn't so right. um i didn't get that golden ticket and um so i did what i needed to do to um create music and to share it with the world did you have any favorite uh people that you looked up to coming up that you got to meet maybe along the way um i remember when El when i first time i heard elliot smith um either or this was in like 95 i think or 96 like right mm -hmm. when it came out i was with a friend we were at a party in milwaukee up on the rooftop and that was when the hale bop comet was going by oh wow yeah, and I had been like in Chicago. I had just been like, like gr grinding around, like trying to find the right vantage point so I could see this comet because I love comets. I have a total thing for comets. And nice um, at this party in Milwaukee, I was listening to Either Or, uh, the first song, and just was like being carried away by the song. And I looked up, there's the comet. Awesome, that's great. It's a good song to find the comet to too. Yeah, yeah, the first one, uh, Speed Trials. So. Oh man, that would, that's like one of the, as soon as you said you were at a party though, when the Hale Bob comment, I was like, they weren't all wearing sneakers, Nikes at this party, were they? And <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, I stumbled in this random house. They just let me in, handed me a drink. 
I went outside to see the comet. I came back in. Everyone's sleeping. Everyone's, yeah, everyone's asleep. I was like, what the hell happened? <laughs> I have a cool Elliot Smith story. Um, the first place I ended up, um, I left Chicago. I traveled around, and I didn't know where I was going or what I was doing. Um, I just knew that I sh- didn't want to be in Chicago anymore. This was when I was really young and just, just starting out. Um I guess leaving Chicago. I lived on my own in Chicago for a while, but mm-hmm. but um, you know, I um, I ended up in Portland. That was kind of where I ran out of my money, and my car was breaking down, and I was sick, and uh, so I just couldn't go any farther. And there's really not a lot farther you can go from Chicago than Portland. And um, I had gone via, you know. New England and New York and Florida and Texas and, you know, like all over the country Mm -hmm. um, this first time. And uh, I ended up meeting some people. Um, They took me out in Portland and I met Larry Crane, who is a music producer and has does that music magazine called Tape Op. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. Which uh, was just getting started then. This was in 90, I think the end of 98 or maybe the end of 97. And um, I met he was getting a divorce. I met his ex-wife and moved into this house with her. And Larry had had his uh, studio in the basement. So some of uh, Elliot's um, music had been recorded in the first house that I moved into in Portland. Wow. Yeah. It was just this crazy. That is so cool. Yeah. Yeah, That is is crazy. So I really got started as a songwriter in the same house where Elliot had recorded. Are you... Are you the type of person like are you pretty brazen when you get to when you get to see somebody that you've admired for a while? Or do you go right up to them and introduce yourself or you kind of hang back? No, I got introduced to Elliot just from being, you know, just being in the music scene and he had That's already cool. moved to New York at that point. But um I I really I loved him and respected his music so much that I just didn't want to overwhelm him because I knew he was a sensitive person. Mm-hmm. So I was just like really kind of respectful and um, I have a, a capo. Do you know what a capo is? It's that so, clip no. that you use. You put it on a guitar. Oh, yeah. It's the key. Yeah. Um, I was playing a show in downtown Portland at Satyricon with my band. I was opening for Bobby Kahn. If you know him, he's the avant-garde guy from Chicago. Um, and this uh, guy came in and, and said, hey, can I borrow a capo um, for Elliot Smith? Because he was playing um, at another venue. And I was mm-hmm. like, sure, here you go. He's like, uh promise i'll get it back to you and you guys can get into the show for free so elliot smith borrowed my capo we got to go to the show i got my capo back and i still have it oh that's oh, awesome think about that you know i'm like wow elliot smith played with this capo were we were we just we were just talking about things like that right where they don't really i can't think of what it's called but how things objects don't have meaning i mean what were we talking about was i saying this the other day i don't even know but objects don't have meaning until you give them me like like we were you know this is just a cap you know what i mean but if i you know i'm I'm performing with somebody and they need it for something and then somebody gets it you know and then it travels back to me all of a sudden this thing has meaning only 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 if the people are around to still talk about it and tell a story with it otherwise it's just an object but if it's if it's a guitar or if it's a capo or 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 like a guitar pick yeah. Like that's the thing I think of. You know, I don't know. I think I was talking about was my buddy. Like when you're in a, when you're in an audience, we've we've had guitar picks from shows. Somebody throws them out, and until until it's tossed from like somebody that you respect and love or like at a concert, 
it doesn't have any meaning until then. You know what I mean? Then you're like, holy shit, like Dave Grohl tossed this guitar, you know, or whatever. And now you're going to tell people that for the rest of the, you know, it's, it's very weird about how people get, I'm going to form this thought better at another time. <laughs> and overdub um, it. And overdub it. Yeah. And just, it's going to be me like talking and it's going to be real words coming out, but you know what I mean? Like, it's awesome that that capo now has more of a story to it and a thing to it. And it exists because you can tell it. Yeah. Yeah. That was sort of a better way to say it, but we'll still fix it later. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I have a quick question. So, when you now, I find this really interesting. So now you've been an artist and moving around, traveling around, and we all know the uh, insurance, health insurance, is not the best for artists. So when you came upon your, you know, your medical dilemma, what what was it like facing that? Especially like in America, when the you know it was a little off. Yeah. Well, being on the road, um, I had a condition, um, a disease called endometriosis, um, yeah. which uh is um it's it's a embryogenesis like when the embryo is is differentiating cells like really early in the development some of the cells that should be in the lining of the uterus end up in places where it's not supposed to be so it uh, it's kind of like a cancer and mm -hmm. it creates pain that is like on par with appendicitis mm, yeah like appendicitis level pain like every day and I had a really severe case of I also have autoimmune stuff that's going on that's that's like separate from that but um I was living and it didn't get diagnosed until like 2011 I think 2010 is when things got really bad and I finally started having surgeries and stuff but I had, you were like, having symptoms of it for, way before that, right? Like where it would. Right. So I'm living on the road, like in this man's world, you know, because it really was mostly men um, mm. out playing music and um, having to live with this incredible pain. And, um, you know, it makes you really tired and run down. And my blood was really run down. And um, so uh, it was kind of this pretty great burden to be bearing it was like the secret that I had and I couldn't really talk about it and I didn't know that I had it for sure but I just knew that I was in a ton of pain and that mm -hmm. I didn't feel like everybody else like I knew that I was different but I didn't know why mm. yeah how are you, how are you doing not now having in, not having insurance and being on the road like um I was lucky to get into a doctor's appointment let alone like sit down and have tests and all yeah. this stuff it takes to be diagnosed with something so it was like uh it just kind of like was an extra you know just an extra thing to be living with the secret you know yeah. yeah and were you able to were you able to get insurance was it able to be taken care of or did you have to raise a lot of like self-pay but you know try and pull funds yeah um in portland or, or sorry in austin um i came to austin um i was getting sicker and sicker this disease um you know, in addition to the autoimmune stuff would eventually be debilitating for me. And while that process was kind of turning for me, just like blasting through it and, um, you know, trying to just live like as if nothing was going on and just kind of being ground down. Um, I was in Austin when this process was happening and Austin had Health Alliance for Austin Musicians, which is a nonprofit that before Obamacare was providing um, musicians with basic health care. So you could go to a wow. doctor. Um, and so, uh, you know, when I had a life-threatening um, situation, ended up in emergency room and in emergency surgery, you know, I, I did 
have insurance. Wow. Okay. So and I ended up having five abdominal surgeries in like less wow. than 10 years. So it was Jeez. like, I was either having surgery, recovering from surgery, trying to figure out if the surgery worked, trying to plan a surgery. And it was just like, uh, it was really, it was really rough. Were you able to draw a lot from that? Like with your music, were you able to put a lot of that strife and struggle into your music? Or did you try to use it as an escape and be totally different from it? I mean, it was probably there whether I wanted it to be or not. Um, mm -hmm. There's a new song that I just wrote that is more specifically about it. It's called 17 Scars. Oh. Um, and oh. so uh, that's the first time that I've really like, looked Addressed at it through it. the songwriting process you know i yeah. mean there was there was songwriting performing and all this stuff requires a lot of energy and bandwidth and like when i was so sick like i was literally in survival mode yeah um, and i still managed to write but um and put you know put out a couple like little homemade records but uh it you know it was uh it was like a really hard and sad time was well, there something that... you used as a constant to keep you going what like like uh was there something that you used to like keep yourself like in high spirits like going like creatively musically and stuff during that time um i mean i went a hundred percent as hard as i could 110 percent until i hit the wall and i couldn't wow. yeah wow that's, I mean, that, my friend has uh, endometriosis or like she deals with that kind of stuff. And it's relatively new. Like it took a long time. I don't know if it was the same for you, but it took a long time for them to figure out even what she had, which was, I think the worst part was not knowing for so long. Mm -hmm. And now there's like, I mean, it sucks that she, that she has got it and she has to deal with it. But I think there's a little, there's like a, there's a bit of relief because now she's like, okay, now at least they figured it out. And I can, and I can kind of work from there, but yeah, I don't know why it takes so long. Uh, I think it's because of just an inherent bias against women's health. I mean, if there was a disease wow. that if, if the same kinds of symptoms were affecting men the same way mm -hmm. women, I think it would have been figured out like a lot, a lot more quickly. But I think there's just this, this idea that women, um, that periods are this mysterious thing because periods are involved in endometriosis and that uh, women uh, have pain and that pain is just something that they deal with. And it's like, no, motherfucker, like this is pain. Right. Don't even, it's not normal. It's not okay. And right. it, it yeah. takes, I think, 12 years from the time that symptoms begin to when a woman gets a diagnosis. Wow. wow. 12 years. Holy shit. I, that I did not know. Yeah, that is crazy. Yeah. Oh my God, that's, an, that's and insane. And a lot of the treatments that they were offering, we don't have to talk. Just we can change the subject. Um, no, it's all good. Yeah, whatever. Real quick, I I, I would say that uh, it's just recently that there's a lot of activism. There's a group called Nancy's Nook for endometriosis education that will tell you everything that you need to know. The Endometriosis Foundation is also another really good resource for women who want um to kind of cl clear just clear away all of the uh misinformation and the vagueness and the uh treatments that don't work and kind of get 
to the meat of it because there is more information available now than there was even when I was diagnosed like 15 years ago. So wow, yeah, medicine's moving fast with a, with a lot of a lot of things. So that's one of the bonuses, right? Like as time goes on, we start to learn more, and you're helping spread awareness. I feel like a lot of people, if they, if people aren't affected directly by something, they tend not to see it, right? They don't want to see it, and they just keep moving. So you. You're an influencer and you're able to show more awarenesses. So I think it's a good thing. I mean, it's good that you're sharing it on a platform and then hopefully other people will just start poking into it or maybe get diagnosed earlier because they could start seeing some of the things, you know, back and forth. Yeah, yeah it's not uncommon. I mean, it's it's I think it's one in 10 women and some people can have it and not have. Sometimes other people can. I had stage four, which is the worst. Hmm. Um and that's like multiple organ systems are involved in that. Wow. Um, or you could have stage four and not even know it. Or you could have stage one and have the horrible pain. So there's not a lot of rhyme or reason to how it manifests in a person's body. Wow. Yep. Is there a test yet or something that you can people can do ahead of time to like, is, is there any way to catch it early? No. Mm, there wow. is no, it's a surgery. And it's present at, like I said, before birth so it's like cells that ended up doing something they're not supposed to do so they're hanging out like on organs and on your the walls of your abdomen and, mm. and uh, so um that's crazy it, really, surgery surgery is the way that they diagnose it they have to see it right wow wow and then that's... is it genetic does it have a genetic link or is it more yeah it's us mm. interesting yeah. that's interesting yeah, I got uh, I, the genetic stuff always, always blows me away, too, because I feel like, you know, we're so close to figuring out some stuff like we are close to catching things. But then I hear something random in the news where they're like, hey, if you want, you can change your baby's eye color. And it's like, really? Is that what we're doing? <laughs> like, there's, there's so much yeah. else we can try to control with the technology. But they're like, if you want them to have great toes, we got you covered. I'm like, that's what yeah. you're working on. That's what the thing is. Um, it's just weird. I feel like I, it, an hour just blew by, by the way. So, um, oh, yeah, I know yeah, that man. is crazy. Um, but I want to ask you the big three questions that we ask every guest that comes onto the show. Uh, first one is if you could go back in time and talk to your younger self, what piece of advice would you give yourself that would help you today? Um, how young? Oh, it doesn't matter. It's, it's actually you whenever you want to go back and talk to yourself. Um, I would tell myself that you're okay. Okay. Yeah. Nice. And how young would that, how young would you go back? Um, probably about five. Five? Wow. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, second question is, uh, what had to end? I, I, hate, I hate to interrupt this, but do you think five-year-old you would believe you from the future? I don't know. Right? Like, that's what I think sometimes. I, if I would go back. Yeah. She needed to hear it. All right. Yeah. yeah. Um, second question is if you, uh, uh, what had to end in your life, good or bad for you to, uh, wind up where you are today? Um, you know, I'm in recovery, so I would mm. say, um, getting, you know, using, okay. Using substances to change my reality. Right. Yeah. yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. That's important. And that's um, a lot, that's a lot of, a lot of our guests. Same thing. Same. Yeah. 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 Uh, how many years? Mm, multiple you, yeah. okay well that's awesome congrats by the way yes congrats. Uh, yeah um and the last question it ties into the show it's a goofy question but if this was a genuine dystopia 
and it was the last day on earth for everybody so your choice alien zombies uh, climate change whatever you think is destroying the earth uh what would be your epic death how would you want to go out um i think maybe a, a, on a canoe with uh somebody i love um and just like going down maybe a river in in the hill country in texas and like just kind of disappear into a beautiful sunset like with a couple of like uh kind of like stone stony outcroppings on either side and like maybe Ooh. like a cool like heron flying by really slow and some gar like swimming under the water like that would be fun very be nice fun. that was beautiful that was very vivid you painted a <laughs> very vivid picture right like i felt like i was there yeah i love that that's, that's what i'm saying about her lyrics before too though like you immediately have stuff in your head where you're like oh my god i could totally see doing that yeah that'd be great um, well, I just want to thank you so much for coming on with us, and we'll definitely plug the new album when it comes out. Okay. Yeah, and we hope. That, are thank you going to come out to the East Coast anytime soon? Um, I hope so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm like I said, I'm just kind of getting, getting back in the, uh, back in the saddle with all that. But I would love to come out and play in New York and sweet. Um, maybe even do a little East Coast tour. Yeah, that'd nice. be great. We'd love to come see you. Yeah, I'll let awesome. you know. Thank you. It was sweet. It was nice oh, meeting good. you. Nice talking to you. Yeah, thanks so much. Dystopia tonight.